0: with the long term strategies, with the net zero strategies, if they're implemented, we could stay within 2 degrees Celsius of warming. We could get to 1.8 degrees Celsius. But the same report says that these strategies are not credible. There is no credible roadmap connecting the short term actions happening now with the long term actions that need to happen in the middle of the century. So that's the gap we need to tackle.
1: Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference, and every second counts.
2: I want you to panic. I want you to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not
1: an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 1.5 is what we need to survive. Welcome back to the Accelerating Climate Solutions podcast. I'm Stefan Schurick from the Foundation's platform F20.
2: And I'm Ruth Richardson, former Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. This podcast is about tackling the tough issues at the heart of the climate crisis. Together, we get to the bottom of what's holding back solutions. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at the Indonesian G20 presidency and the upcoming G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. The 2022 G20 summit will take place on November 15th and 16th. It's a critically important gathering. Stefan, let me share a few numbers with you. G20 countries account for more than 60% of the world's population, 80% of global GDP, 75% of international trade, And here's a figure really relevant for our listeners. G20 countries are responsible for 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. These wealthier, better-resourced countries have a huge role to play in steering global climate action. G20 countries are also in a position to fund climate mitigation and adaptation efforts within and beyond their borders. This includes under-resourced countries that are most vulnerable to climate change, but contribute the least to global emissions.
1: It also bears mentioning that the group of the G20 nations is still providing a lot of funding for fossil fuels. So nearly two billion U.S. dollars still went into fossil fuels in the year 2021. So it's not going all into the right direction. And a bit of background on the G20 presidency. The presidency rotates every year between its 19 members and the European Union. Indonesia holds the presidency this year and is closely collaborating with the 2021 host, which was with Italy, and of course with the incoming host in 2023, which is India. And the reason why they're doing this in this so-called Troika is to guarantee some kind of a continuity of what's been discussed this year, what has been discussed last year, and what will be decisions of next year. So our two guests today, and I'm really, really delighted to welcome our um, two guests today, they can tell us a bit more about the G20 process and how it could contribute to meaningful climate action. Both of them have had deep insights in the G20 process and into the governments of the particular countries. And it gives me great pleasure to first welcome Ulka Kelkar, who is the Director Climate Program of the World Resource Institute in India. Hello. Welcome, Olka, And we're also joined today by Ilham Habibi, who is the F20 co-chair and co-founder and chairman of Board of Trustees of the Habibi Center, an Indonesian-based family foundation and think tank, working on many issues, um, but also working on environmental issues, but also on democracy. Great pleasure to welcome you, Ilham. Hello. Hi, Stefan.
2: Ulka and Ilham, we start every episode by asking our guests one question. Looking at the global climate crisis... If you could press one button and change one thing, what would it be? Ulka, let me start with you. For me, it has to be finance. If I could
0: press a button and make it happen, it would be increasing the flows of climate finance from developed countries to developing countries. Uh, we've just had a new report come out from the UNEP, an Emissions Gap Report, And it says that even if all countries achieve the pledges, the nationally determined contributions that they've made, even then, we will have still 2.6 degrees of warming. 2.6 degrees of warming with the pledges that countries call unconditional, that is, that they are confident of being able to fund them domestically. But they also have conditional pledges, saying we can do more if you give us the finance or technology to implement these. With that, we can reduce global warming to 2.4 degrees Celsius. So that's really a difference that finance can make in this decade right now. And the reason why I talk about finance is not from a perspective of charity. This means more jobs in new green sectors. It means reducing productivity losses due to heat stress. Uh, It means energy security for our country, something that we're all grappling with. And even in adaptation, that is adapting to the risks of climate change in sectors like agriculture, water, health, even there, which is not very conducive to commercial investments, uh, a report from the Global Commission on Adaptation tells us that every dollar of money invested in adaptation can yield 2 to $10 of returns in actions like early warning systems or climate resilient energy infrastructure. So I think finance can really make a big difference. And that's the button I would press to make one thing happen.
2: Fantastic. So increasing financial flows. Elam, what about for you? If you could press one button and change one thing, what would it be?
3: Since we have heard already a lot of things about the financial aspect of things, I'd like to add something being an engineer about the technical side or technological side. So I think that uh, if you would have taken uh, the alternative uh of renewable energy more seriously earlier uh and because the technology was around since many many decades in many cases but we didn't have enough uh, I don't know focus or maybe diverted by the ease of doing uh fossil fuel energy based energy forms and also basically belittling or under underestimating the impact of the emissions to the world climate, if we would have taken it more serious many, many years back, I think we would have a different situation right now. There's a lot of catch up in many sectors to do, in many countries. Again, that is, I think it's a big part because we underestimated the problem. And at the same time, uh, we're too comfortable in our individual comfort zone with the current technological status of our energy delivery or energy systems. That would be one thing. Just take it more serious, Many, many decades ago, many of the components were already there. And of course, they were maybe not at the same maturity level like today, but it's all a matter of how much money and attention you put in the same thing. So I think that we could have been arriving at a better
1: point for today. I'm not sure if the button is attached to a time-lapse mechanism, but <laughs> definitely the point is actually well taken, that you really push renewables as the biggest alternative earlier, of right? the... Uh, earlier, uh, much
3: earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, when I was a student, I already learned a lot about solar energy, but it was just by the way kind of thing. (laughs) So the technology was already there. But of course, maybe some of the major advancements were not achieved then, but it's all a matter of attention and actually uh, investment, I think, in the end.
2: Well, thank you both for those answers. Very fascinating. And they sort of position us to look to the future. But I'd like to just pause for a second before we dig into the G20 discussion um, and talk about um, what will happen in the context of the G20 and um, what sort of action we need um, moving forward. The reason I'd like to pause is I'd really like our listeners to understand how climate change is affecting your two countries, because that's really what this is about, is how we, as a global community, are experiencing this in situ. So, Elam, parts of Indonesia are already facing some really heavy climate impacts. Um, what is the climate change landscape like in your country?
3: Yeah, well, it's a difficult question to answer, but for sure, I'm not a climate uh, scientist, so there's maybe a lot of people that can give you a better, more detailed answer. But what I see as a layman is that the weather pattern has changed a lot. Whenever we have extreme weather, then the amounts of say rain has become uh, much larger than before. At the same time we have also drier periods for a longer time. Some of which I think is it's climate. Yes, that's true. There are other phenomena that have to do with climate as well, but it's it's like indirect is the El Niño and La Niña effect that has changed as well. Probably um, because we have those swings And our weather pattern always dependent on whether we have El Nino or La Nina. So in an El Nino year, we have a drier period, very much drier. And in La Nina year, we have a much wetter period. But that has shifted as well. When is that happening? So I think it's more the the shifts of the patterns uh, also in a a timely fashion. Yeah, I I mean, time-wise. At the same time, uh, of course, we have seen also uh, rising sea levels already in some parts of Indonesia actually all parts but with different impacts because the sea level i mean some of the islands have a they're relatively unstable coastline and so we have seen more erosions than uh, the impact on the, the the forest on the vegetation is also quite significant i think and lastly i i would say that the weather has become so unpredictable i mean it's uh, what but that is maybe in, in a smaller scale, what I said before, the change in weather patterns. Yeah. What used to be a dry season now is neither, neither here nor nor there. I mean, it's, it's like a mix, and so the, the traditional segregation or segmentation of the year and the dry and in, in the rainy season is not. you cannot do that anymore as such. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, uh, that is maybe what I can see as a layman. Yeah, in uh, changes uh, the impact of the climate on, on Indonesia so far.
2: And, Uho, what about for you? Um, this year's heat wave in India and Pakistan made global news. We're all very aware of that. In what other ways are you seeing climate change really affecting people in India?
0: It's It's very similar to the way Ilham described it, the weather is becoming more erratic, more extreme, more unpredictable. In India, as you might know, we're very dependent on the monsoon. Most of our rainfall comes in just these three or four months in the middle of the year. And water resources depend on it. Agriculture depends on it. The country is still two-thirds rain-fed cultivation, not irrigation. And generally, the whole way of life, school, holidays, working patterns, everything is very still attuned to the weather and to the seasons. Uh, So what we are finding is that two or three things are happening. In our cities, the urban heat island effect is becoming stronger. So the way we are building our cities paving over the open spaces, you know, creating more concrete jungles, as we call them in India, of concrete and glass and steel. All that is strapping heat and and leaving less space for people who work outdoors, maybe construction laborers, maybe people who deliver food or other things. Uh, for all those people to really protect themselves from extreme heat. Even with the water, what is happening is with the veins um, we are getting these bursts of extreme rainfall interspersed with gaps when there are dry spells. Um, in the northeast of India, which is very close to Bangladesh, there were extreme floods, severe floods this year, soon after the heat wave. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is really something that we are not prepared to cope with, even in a country which, is, um, which has always faced extreme events. And it's affecting every sector. Wheat production was hit by the heat wave at the same time as the war in Ukraine was already affecting global wheat supplies. Energy demand went up, uh, forcing us to use more coal at a time when we were actually hoping to reduce our use of coal and fossil fuels. So, every sector gets affected. And really, those who have done the least And those who have the least resources to protect themselves are the ones who are facing the brunt of these impacts. But the lesson for us, really, apart from protecting ourselves from climate risks, is to be more sensible in the way we develop new infrastructure, to make sure we leave room in our cities that we are planning right now for the water to percolate and for um, mangroves and other natural buffers to be retained, that's something that I think is becoming a little more acknowledged even as we face these growing risks due to climate change.
1: Many thanks Ulka and many thanks Ilham for sharing with our audience the local perspectives and it really is such an important reminder that climate and environment change affects people living around the world and in very different ways. It does affect ourselves here in Europe um, quite remarkably. But what you just said about India and Indonesia, obviously, is as dramatic, if not even more dramatic, than in other parts of the world. And on top of that, it is important to emphasize that the average per capita CO2 emissions of both countries are at two tons. So way below from where Germany or the United States are. For example, of course, when land use is factored in, it's a little bit higher, the per capita emissions. But nevertheless, the accumulated contributions of India and Indonesia to the climate crisis are, of course, much smaller than those of Germany, the European Union or Japan or the United States. So that brings me to the GDP. 20 again which is why i think it really is an interesting group that comes together there because all those countries as well as india indonesia brazil china that haven't had the biggest impact on the climate crisis in the first decades they're all sitting at the same table with the g7 countries for example so let's change gears and to focus a little bit on the on the on the G20. So just um, a little background information for our listeners. the G20 was formed in 1999 as a crisis group in the midst of a global financial crisis and it was initially created to achieve international financial stability. So now it has some experience in dealing with the crises and now of course it is the question to what extent they will be able to really manage such a global crisis like climate change. So, know, maybe the question to you would be, when you look at the G20 this year and on this multilateral format, what is your main expectation on the outcome, also with regard to the Indonesian presidency? And do you think that such a forum like the G20 can actually incorporate global priorities over national priorities?
3: This year's expectation are uh, probably tainted by the reality of this year as well. Uh, because in the, the fact remains that, uh, G20 is a very diverse group of countries with very different interests and very different form of government. And therefore, and at the moment we have a conflicts that are of a very big nature from G20 countries to other countries which are not G20, but I mean, it, it it basically uh, touches a lot of G20 countries in the same region. I think we all know what I mean. And for Indonesia as a president uh, of the or chair of the G20 this year, I think many things that could have been achieved if you would not have had this situation in Ukraine and Russia it would look better today. Yeah, I, I think it made, that may the focus was taken away in a in a in a, in a not small way, and um, the intention of Indonesia was to focus on three topics and one of them being energy transition. And I think uh, we have achieved a few things, but I, I think uh, at the same time uh, a lot of attention was taken away by the current situation. Yeah. So uh, my hope is that despite the situation, we know that Mr. Putin is coming to Indonesia. That's, I think, quite uh, assured from all sides that I, so far that I know. Uh, but I think that at least the uh, there could be some statements that have relevance and can be brought over to next year's uh, presidency of India, of the G20. So we have a continuation of uh, the very important topics to be discussed between nations. Ruth already mentioned the significance of G20 uh, vis-a-vis the world. I mean, it's a very uh, major part of the world economy, the world emissions, the world trade, etc., etc. comes from those countries. So if we can Find a process, at least the process we agree on, to come to some form of uh, decision that probably will have to be taken in the uh, in the United Nations, I believe, right? Because uh, G20 is not has no decision making power that is sort of like uh, binding. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's hard, uh, but at least it's it's a preparatory forum, uh, for a significant part of world economy that it presented in the United Nations that maybe will have more traction. So, yeah, that would be my hope. Yeah, that we can come to some sort of uh, coordination of what has been developed in the last year G20 and we continue it in next year G20. So over time, uh, hopefully sooner than later, we can come to real decisions that can be implemented in other forms like in COP27 uh, or the, the next one or uh, in, in other United Nations related forums.
2: Super interesting and this, this raises a question for me for Ulka. What you've been talking about, Elam, is having an agenda, needing to advance that agenda, and yet then having these other crises that, that kick us off the agenda. We can probably expect that that's going to happen more and more and not less and less. So, question this raises for me is the role of other organizations, businesses, civil society groups, you know, others that can push governments and continue to hold them to account and continue to push them further and to ensure that those critical agendas like the energy transition stay in the spotlight and that they continue to be a priority. So my question for you, Olcook, because you're with the World Resources Institute and you're a global research organization that works with these other stakeholders to develop practical solutions to global challenges. So, How are the research activities and other activities of World Resources Institute advancing international climate action in India and globally to ensure that these climate change discussions are made a priority at the G20 summit and in other fora?
0: One of the things that my team particularly tries to do is to demonstrate how climate action can also be good for the economy and for society. So, for example, we model the impacts of the installation of clean energy and the expansion of, say, green hydrogen, public transport uh, measures, electric mobility, all of these things together and show how this does not mean that there would be a cost to the economy. In fact, it would be a boost to the economy. New jobs would be created. It is good for health because along with greenhouse gases being reduced, local air pollutants are also reduced and millions of lives can be saved. Millions of premature deaths can be avoided in countries like India. It's also good for water because when you shift away from thermal power or say nuclear power to renewable energy, much less water is needed by these power plants. And that's really key in a water-stressed country like India. So we do try to demonstrate some of this, provide hard evidence, provide pilots, for example. But I must say that I think more and more we're seeing that the sustainable energy transition priority of the Indonesian government is very much likely to be carried forward by the Indian government when it takes over to the G20 presidency. Earlier this year, when the finance minister of India made a budget speech, an annual budget speech, she called climate change a sunrise sector, They're clearly seeing this as something that will create more jobs and they're providing incentives for manufacturing of, say, new battery chemistries, um, solar manufacturing. India also hosts this International Solar Alliance, which is very recently, just last week, uh, passed a resolution saying we should try to diversify supply chain so that the benefits can be distributed around the world. We know that there are a lot of very on-the-ground challenges. For example, as we scale up renewable energy, we need the grid to be stronger. We need energy to be able to be stored and transmitted. We uh, need, for example, many technologies in industry to become cheaper, which currently is simply not the case in heavy industries like cement and steel, which are the backbone of the Indian industry. So there are opportunities, but there are also really tough challenges ahead. And, and, a, and a forum like G20, which, as Ilham said, is such a diverse group of countries, can make sure that there is some kind of technology transfer, technology partnerships for these harder beat sectors, for things like a regional grid, for things like green shipping. There are many new things that this group of countries can do together Uh, And I think for me personally, most importantly for us, what we try to do is emphasize how people will be affected by this transition. The just energy transition that is that as we move from fossil fuel based economies to renewable-based economies, we should not carry forward the current inequities in access to energy or access to livelihood opportunities. We should try to make sure that not only are we cleaning up our economy, but we're also trying to make our society a more equal, more equitable society. Uh, Particularly, I am very personally passionate about how women, Indian women, can access more of these new green jobs that can be created. Uh, can they get the skills and the training? Can they get safe, decent working conditions and access to childcare? All of this to us is also part of the issue of a sustainable energy transition or climate action. And I think um, there's much that we can learn from other countries in the G20, like South Africa, Indonesia, and Brazil, which will be the next presidency. Uh, so I'm I'm really optimistic about, about this um, upcoming summit.
1: And you mentioned it, it really is um, going to be a very interesting set of next three presidencies with India, Brazil, and then South Africa, most probably. So the next four presidencies will be with countries not from the G7. And I think that's in itself, a huge chance to really look at the interdependencies of themes, look at the just part of the transition, of course, and to take the perspective from emerging economies and from developing countries, of course, namely from the global south. So one question for you, Ilham, maybe would be, and Olka mentioned it, that sustainable energy transition um, was one of the three priorities of the Indonesian or is one of the three priorities of the Indonesian government and the Indonesian presidency. The other two are global health architecture and digital transformation. And certainly all the three of them are closely interconnected. So I don't know if you could just share some of your thoughts on how a fora such as the G20 can really help in highlighting the interconnectedness between those different Goals and making sure that, you know, um, providing reliable and resilient energy, making our cities more resilient, as we've heard from Olga, these are huge benefits also for the health situation in the particular countries. And both can be achieved with um, digital technology, at least to some extent. So the things are interconnected. So, do you think that the G20? as a forum, can actually help to highlight the interconnectedness between those things. And the second question then, of course, do you think that the Indonesian government can actually encourage its fellow members to really move ahead with activities, despite the difficulties that you just described with regard to the geopolitical agenda that is hijacking any sustainability agenda at the moment? Well, uh, in terms
3: of the current geopolitical agenda, it's more the attention span or the energy yeah, right. put into something rather than diverting everybody diverting uh, diverting the attention to other topics. It's more the uh, not attention they're diverting the uh, taking the other topics for serious. I mean, everybody knows that these three topics that you just mentioned: global health system, the digital uh, digitalization of almost everything, and the energy transition. This is enormously important. I think the awareness of all countries is there. It's just the time spent on it. Right now, there's a lot of diversion of some, some countries more affected than others, but uh, that basically has an effect on the uh, intensity of the discussion, those three topics that we just mentioned. So for Indonesia, I mean, uh, uh, it, it depends really on what, what topic, topic we are talking. If you talk about, uh, digitalization of almost everything, then uh, what I've seen in the, in the, in the field, if I may say that, the, the intensity of, say, the digital economy working group under the G20 then exacerbated by other discussion in the B20 and also that you have the T20 uh, or the S20 or with discussion about smart cities, which is by and large digital, there has been so much talk between parties about digital matters. Yeah? So I think uh, it's good to talk about that in the format of G20. If the G twenty would not be there, people would still talk about it. So actually, it is very much in the in the mindset of everybody. I think the digital thing is it doesn't need to be pushed by G twenty so much in order to achieve something similar. The same goes actually even more for the global health. Maybe system.
1: on data protection, though. I'm just coming, you know, yeah, okay, there are I mean, a couple there, of issues. With or without, the G20, with or without the G
3: twenty, without without the G twenty, that is something that uh, the discussion are ongoing. You know, I mean, this is not something. There's many other forums where you have discussion about digital merits yeah uh, regarding the global health system is even more so uh, when it comes to discussions because there was because of the urgency of the situation right i mean people uh, countries were talking to one another for uh, getting the vaccines the understanding sharing uh, procedures and, and other and other uh, sharing procedures and uh, and other other information with one another in order to overcome the the pandemic, yeah. Well, I think on on, on the, the last topic that you mentioned, the energy transition, that is something that requires a multilateral forum where you have a lot of uh, government intervention needed, right? So for the digitalization, digital economy, that is a, a business that's driven by business in many cases, right? So business, government is participating, yes, but uh, it's, it's, it's like lagging behind uh, a little bit in terms of digitalization in many, in many parts. Uh, but when it comes to energy transition, if you would not have the government in there given the direction that I think uh businesses tend to just continue where they make a lot of money. And that is unfortunately not in the in the in many countries in many parts of the world. It's not in the renewable energy sector. You don't make a lot of money there yet. So it it's not purely, it cannot be driven by private sector. There needs to be government intervention. There, particularly there, you need a government-led discussion in the form of, say, the G20. I think that is more true for the energy sector than for the other two.
2: Interesting. I'm gonna pick up a couple of threads here. Um, First of all, thank you, Elam, for for that answer. At the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, we talk all the time about systems thinking and approaches that are needed to tackle these multiple crises and the complexity that exists between them. And already in this conversation, we've talked about the war in Ukraine, the energy transition, you've just brought up COVID, All of these things are so intimately connected. So thank you for helping to highlight some of those connections. And we know that November is a really busy month for global convenings. We have COP27 in Egypt, and then the G20 summit falls at the tail end of the climate conference. And a key priority of the G20 summit should be connecting the dots between climate conversations, but many of these other conversations, and then, of course, the the G20 agenda itself. A piece of this puzzle, again, looking at the full system, but one, one element of this are nationally determined contributions or NDCs for our listeners. And these are the, the commitments that, that countries make towards the Paris Climate Agreement. In August of 2020, India updated its NDCs. And you know these are the roadmaps, again, that countries create to outline how they're going to achieve climate targets Bulka, maybe this is a question for you, because the website Climate Action Tracker noted that India's NDC is now stronger on paper, but that, and I quote, India will already achieve these targets with its current level of climate action, and that new targets will not drive further emissions reductions, end quote. So I wonder in this whole picture of, of interconnected crises, of the NDCs being a particular tool to advance action, these fora that we have that help force global commitment. Um, How can we really take advantage of these fora like the G20 to urge national governments like India and, and others, every other country, to update their NDCs in a way that doesn't just look on paper, but that really contributes to climate progress and also advances some of these other interrelated issues.
0: India's first NDC had two targets. One was that 40% of the Indian electricity mix would come from non-fossil fuels by 2030. And India achieved that in 2021. So clearly you could argue in hindsight that the first NDC could have been tougher, could have been uh, more optimistic or ambitious, but that's only in hindsight. I think at that time, given how prices were, given how technologies were, Ilham spoke at the beginning of this this conversation about how solar was not as widespread before as it is now. Given at that time, you could argue that it was something where the Indian government did not want to promise to the international community something that it could not keep up. And I think a lot of countries take that approach. The second indice was that 33 to 35% would be reduced in the GHG intensity of GDP, which basically means that any unit of goods or services that we produce in India will be cleaner, will use less uh, fossil fuels, will use them more efficiently and all that. There we are on the right track. It's uh, by last account, there's been a 24% fall. That's data from some years ago. Now on both of these targets, just... Uh, in August this year, India increased its uh, commitment. So the 40% has now become 50% and the 33 to 35% has become 45%. So there's a clear upgrade. Now, whether this is something that is business as usual, I disagree. Uh, we've done some modeling which shows that this is not business as usual. And mind you, when we say business as usual, we take into account all the policies on renewable energy, on electric mobility, various incentives that we're are being provided, the trend in falling costs of technologies, the trend in efficiency improvement. I, I don't agree with this particular uh, report that uh, that this is something that looks good uh, on paper or that is something that will just happen automatically. I think given the ground realities in India, with how weak the infrastructure is in terms of the grid, in terms of storage, in terms of skills, I think there's going to be a huge challenge. So if India uh, is aiming to basically triple its renewable energy capacity in eight years, and basically add what, uh, you know, I think something like by some calculation within eight years, what is in UK's or Germany's entire renewable energy capacity. This is unprecedented for a lower middle income country uh, like, like India. The issue really, or rather the key really is that the faster that the scale up of renewable energy can happen, and I mean in a way that is effective and usable, so I mean with storage and transmission and all of that, the faster we can phase down the use of fossil fuels. Because otherwise, even with this unprecedented scale-up of renewable energy, India's emission scenarios, and that's the sort of thing that these um, reports look at, will not look much better because we'll continue to have this baseline of coal being used simply because we don't have an alternative in the short run.
2: So that's really where a lot of the attention needs to be focused before I hand it over to you, Stefan, I just want to say thank you for your answer. And I think with that quote, we we're trying to be a bit provocative. Sure. <laughs> and also not to um, shine a light on India unfairly at all, but instead to um, open up a conversation about all countries and what they are are, are are not doing or how they're being perceived to be advancing action or not. So I think this is, a, I'd love to to have a roundtable with representatives from every country and, and um, sort of scrutinize all country plans. Um, but really appreciate your answer in terms of your own sort of uh, experience in India.
1: Yeah. Also, thanks for my end. Elam, you spoke about uh, various diversions in the context of the G20 and on the multilateral level at the moment. When I look at what could be a little bit less diversive and what could be actually bridging elements also between the Indonesian presidency and the Indian presidency, then there's Something that, um, has first been introduced at the last UN climate summit, which is just energy transition partnerships. And this, for some reason, has now been abbreviated by Jet Peace. So I don't know. People, people seem to like that abbreviation, but, uh, these just energy transition partnerships are actually doing two things. They, they are bringing together G7 countries and, emerging economies and other countries to uh, basically look at both sides of the coin, how to accelerate the phase out of fossil fuels and how to upscale renewables. And this is not just intention re-expressed in the document or so, but really, um, ultimately, it will also be about concrete financial contribution, speaking about financial flows. So the first one that has been introduced was with South Africa uh, that emerged from the climate summit in Glasgow. And uh, there are uh, a couple of other jet peas discussed at the moment. And two of the most prominent examples at the moment are um, just energy transition partnerships uh, with Indonesia and just energy transition partnerships with India. So my question would be, Do you think that if we would agree that the renewables agenda is something that actually has still a chance to find consensus then, is this one of those bridging elements that we could also see between Indonesia and India and the handover to the presidency and making those sort of just energy transition partnerships a success. I know that the negotiations are already going on, and we are really delighted to see that happening. We really hope that they will conclude soon and really manage to get funding flows or financial flows into that direction. But I turn the question to you. Do you think these JETPs can be one of the bridging elements between the two G20 presidencies? And is this something that really then helps the multilateral agenda? I think if you
3: just take the lesson learned from jetP with South Africa, was there any benefit for coming to an agreement between G7 and Indonesia in that regard, having learned the lesson from South Africa? I think much less than we would hope. It's not uh so easy to basically take an existing jetP agreement between parties and apply to another because the situation the the initial situation the the, the the possibilities within that country and also the challenge terms of the size of the problem or the the solutions that are available for that particular country can be very different so what is positive is that if you, the more jet piece we have the more examples we have how it could be achieved but yet you still have to find a very customized solution for one country you cannot just copy paste it right so of course i think uh, yeah but it, it's so uh, the JetP negotiation between G7 and Indonesia, the result will be different than between uh, G7 and India, right? It's a different uh, different energy situation, different pattern, different possibilities that we have in different countries. Right? So I don't see that much synergy as hoped. However, it, as I said before, uh, it is, yes, it's of course good to have many JetPs and examples so we can learn from. How other countries do it, basically, in order to uh, abbreviate the process to come into terms, come to terms of what we want to do between G seven and Indonesia. That would be if we would have much more examples to uh, look at. Then I think it would be a, a great help. But but still, again, the, the discussion between parties will be very detailed. It's very slow, I think. And and I I just came back from a, a reception at the. Residence of the German ambassador, just now, just before this podcast. I was still at the home of the residents mm-hmm. of the German ambassador, and she was receiving a delegation from the Ministry of uh, uh, International, no, not from a Ministry, sorry. It's a delegation from the German parliament, the Commission for International Cooperation, or something led by somebody from the uh, liberals. Yeah. And, uh, and at, at the same uh, um, event, there was a lady from a, uh, German Ministry for Foreign Affairs. She is responsible for Indonesia. And I think even she was not so hopeful that we can find a full agreement before G20. It would be most likely be after because it's actually not so easy. There's a lot of things that were not known to both parties before, although, of course, one tries to be as open as transparent as possible. But still, it's just a difficult topic, I believe. And so there were some surprises, it seems, that uh, have delayed the agreement. And so for... And But it is still, I think uh, both parties are still hopeful to come into agreement. I think that will happen, but maybe not
1: before G20. And
3: the G20 presidency of Indonesia, that's what I mean.
1: Yeah. And Ulka, what's the take of India on just energy transition partnership? I know there has been uh, some discussion underway already with the incoming presidency of India.
0: So compared to South Africa, I think the scale of India's um, just transition challenge only for the coal sector is, I would say, about 10 times as much. Uh, our analysis shows that 4 million coal mining jobs will be lost as a result of phasing down coal. So in that sense, I agree with what Ilham is saying, that you cannot uh, copy-paste. But I think there's a lot that we can learn also from South Africa and their whole approach to inclusion and solidarity, the way they've gone about these consultations. I think that is something that uh, that India can really try to adopt uh, but one of the worrying factors is the recent information that has come out that 97% of South Africa's budget deal is in the form of loans. Now, that gives me a sort of cause to, cause to be concerned because some of the actions that we need for these areas, um, for example, safety nets or pensions for workers who are laid off, uh, skilling programs for young people, restoring the land when coal mines or power plants are closed these are not conducive to um, uh, to commercial investments or the payment of loans it needs grants or concessional finance so i think that is something that uh, that we will be uh, looking at with a little uh, with a little more attention i think it would be very disappointing if 97% of the debt amount was in the form of something that is has to be paid back. Now,
3: I wanted to add something because uh, uh, Oka mentioned this financial aspect, which is very important. Uh, in the discussion between parties, Stefan. you this we had this so-called Global uh, Blend Finance Alliance. This is a, a suggestion by Indonesia that if you talk about JetP, we have to also talk about the financial aspect. And part of that cannot be only from loans, but there has to be a significant portion of basically donations or grants. And, and there might be a uh, an involvement of the philanthropic sector that we can find in some countries which can be activated in that regard in order to get to where we want to be because some of them are not only financeable in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a traditional sense uh, I mean like uh, you, uh Uka, you mentioned the the many jobs that will be lost that is the same in Indonesia Indonesia is and remains the largest coal exporting country in the world right? so you can imagine how many people are dependent on jobs in the coal. Industry, which is not just the coal mines, but it's the coal contracts, the coal traders, the uh, there are so many jobs here, yeah, and it's, it's regionalized. There are many regions where you become overnight very poor,
1: and uh, because they have nothing else other than the coal industry. But I should at least mention for the for the for the protocol, let's say, and it yeah. strikes me, you know, it just needs to be said. The alternative is not doing nothing. The alternative of mining coal is just generating electricity in a different way. And from where where we went down that route, jobs jobs have I'm actually. Trying to,
3: I'm yeah. trying to picture the scale of the problem. Not I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's the scale. Yeah, this is the scale of the problem. But but what I wanted to emphasize is really the the need for uh, innovation in fina- in the financing of the problem, right? So, And that is part, I think, of what the JETP could be, is basically to have a particular focus on the finance aspect. The uh, suggestion from the Indonesian side, Stefan, we heard this many times, on so the so-called GBFA, Global Blended Finance Alliance, which is basically a combination of... Uh, uh, the the as uh, the very known financial patterns from right. the industry, I mean, the, the banking and other investors, but also philanthropists and also from 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 the government, yeah, public finance.
1: It gets a lot of support from the Indonesian government at the moment. So yes, exactly. before we close, I have one final question, and um, as we are already talking, Ilham, I address this first to you, and then maybe Ulka, you can also come in. Then the. Bali Summit is just a few weeks ahead uh, or actually just a few days ahead of us. And when it comes to the G20 Bali Summit, what's your one request for global leaders and what are some tangible steps they should take to get started on that request? So imagine the G20 heads of state are carefully listening to our podcast and now they're expecting your answer, what they should be doing, what is your one request from them, ladies first, Olga.
0: <laughs> sure, I can. I can try to take a crack at that. No, I think for me, I started by saying finance. I'll end by saying solidarity. Uh, all of these kinds of international forums, we hope every time there's a forum that there will be an atmosphere of solidarity. We emphasize that we are in the same boat. Uh, this year, we're all in our countries trying to face this tackle this challenge of energy volatility. Just last year, we were all in the same boat tackling the challenge of the pandemic and economic recession. But somehow, it always happens that when it comes to an international forum like the COP or perhaps even the G20 summit, that sometimes the differences become more accentuated. Uh, brinkmanship takes over the atmosphere of solidarity. So that is something that I would I would hope that that we would um the g20 leaders would kind of um, stick to that the direction of travel is very clear stepan when you were talking about alternative jobs i think there is analysis from wri in the united states which shows that already in 80% of rural counties in america clean energy jobs, outnumber fossil fuel jobs. So it's very clear that that's the direction in which we want to take our economies. I don't think India wants to uh, follow the same pattern of development that is dependent on fossil fuels. The trick to really realizing the potential that exists in developing countries like Ilham's and mine is to provide the right kind of finance at the right time. Uh, Then we can have, we can see faster action in this decade and it will make the post 2030s, mid-century, long-term strategies actually more feasible. The UNEP Emission Gap report that has just come out has pointed out that with the long-term strategies, with the net zero strategies, if they're implemented, We could stay within 2 degrees Celsius of warming. We could get to 1.8 degrees Celsius. But the same report says that these strategies are not credible. There is no credible roadmap connecting the short-term actions happening now with the long-term actions that need to happen in the middle of the century. So that's the gap we need to tackle. And I think finance and solidarity, technology partnerships, all that is going to be really crucial and with this Troika, starting with Indonesia, going on to India, I think we can really uh, make some progress happen.
1: Elam, now they turn their attention to you. Okay,
3: uh, i make it very short. I think we have some lessons learned from COVID, actually, because I see that COVID and climate has something in common, which is that everybody in the planet gets affected. Uh, at the same time, nobody is safe until everybody is safe. Right? It's actually also valid for climate. Only the, the big difference is the speed. I mean, COVID is just so ultra fast. Climate is so slow. Yeah. But the, the impact is still very global and very uh, ubiquitous. Uh, so what I would appeal to all the leaders at G20, like in COVID, make climate not politics, but it's, it's a science. So it should be climate should not be a political topic that some are basically Saying climate is this is all a lie, and others they want to appeal to the electorate because they have a lot of skeptics skeptics in the in the country, and then maybe maybe through that they can win the election. But it's not a topic to be exploited for politics. It is a science like COVID is. Right? COVID is the same thing. There were people that were using the topic to win elections or to 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 to, to drive your opinion to a certain uh, to a certain direction or to gain make political capital out of it that should be disallowed. I know it's not possible because because the individual countries have their own uh, decision-making authority, but basically what my appeal would be, make it a science and not politics. So climate, as much
1: as thought I know, Ruth, you're about to close us now, but I just want to say these are fantastic answers. I really have to say, and I'm, honestly, I really like both of your answers a lot. I mean, solidarity is really absolute key. Um, and, you know, considering ourselves one in the self species that has, you know, to deal with the, with the global crisis. And Elam, that sentence, climate is not a topic to be exploited by politics, is something that I like a lot. And that echoes a lot with what we experience in the day-to-day life of running campaigns yeah. and, you know, and, and, and highlighting the significance of signs in fact. Yes.
2: Yeah, thank you, Ulka and Ilam. Very inspiring and insightful conversation. And it's such an important one to have ahead of the G20 Bali Summit. So I have the, the job of trying to sum up a little bit. So what I took away from this conversation, and I hope our listeners have taken away from the conversation, is first of all, the impacts are real. I think we started in that grounding of how this is being experienced by people in country. I think, Uka, you made this point that we're not prepared to cope with the impacts. And I think that's just a reality that we really have to embrace and confront. The G20 is diverse. I think, Elam, you said there's not as much synergy as hoped. There are different governments and governance, different priorities. We can also get easily knocked off our priorities because of other crises. However, it's a critically important forum, both in terms of the opportunities and in terms of the challenges, You guys have highlighted many of the solutions. I won't list them all, but you've talked about, for instance, diversification of the grids. You've talked about green shipping. You've talked about equity and the role of women. You've talked about just energy transitions and learning from other countries like (coughs) South Africa. And then, of course, you've talked about your two silver bullet solutions, which are faster uptake of renewable energy and, of course, financial flows and making sure that we get more finance and the right finance at the right time. You've also talked about the critical need to connect G20 to other fora. You've talked about the G7, G20, but also really importantly, Elam, I think you made this point, connecting to UN processes, where there's um, greater decision-making frameworks um, and really trying to to force those um, synergies and partnerships. We've also talked about the importance of civil society and others in this space. And by the end of the conversation, we got into philanthropy and the critical role of philanthropy in helping to finance these transitions. And within that, the blended finance piece, which isn't just philanthropy, but philanthropy is a critical player in that context. I also really want to highlight that we didn't get into it specifically, and I wish we had another hour, but underpinning this entire conversation has been the reality of wealthier and better resourced countries versus those that are not. And the need for finance to flow, the need for support, the need for partnerships, the need for really embracing the reality that it's the wealthier, more resource countries that have caused most of the problems. And we really have to be accountable for putting more grease on the wheel to solve the problems. So I really want to highlight that. And then I'm a big fan of principles and elevating the deeper principles and values that we all bring to this work. And your final answers were brilliant. Solidarity and not being exploited by politics. Two beautiful principles to bring to all of this work. So that's how I'd sum up the conversation.
1: And to those who are listening at home, we would like to hear from you. What did you find the most interesting part of today's conversation? We'd really love to uh, continue the conversation with you online, be it via Twitter or via LinkedIn, or you just send us an email, whatever you find us at, at F20 platform.
2: And you can find the Global Alliance for the Future of Food at futureoffood.org. Once again, I'm Ruth Richardson.
1: And I'm Stefan Churik.